Lord. Praise the Lord. Hallelujah. Thank you, Lord. Amen. I'm thankful for victory tonight. Amen. I'm pretty confident. I'm pretty confident I'm not going to win the lottery because I hadn't been playing. There's a lot of things in this world I may not win. <laughs> but no matter the circumstance tonight, we have this confidence. The most important victory has already been won for us. Hallelujah. And it's all right even on Wednesday night to get excited about victory in Jesus. Amen. This old world is, I don't know how you say it, rocking and rolling. It's, for those of you in the uh, nautical world or in the space industry, it's pitching and it's yawing and it's rolling every direction. But I know the peace speaker tonight. Hallelujah. And it doesn't matter the circumstance. We, it's so easy for us to get distracted, but we have victory in Jesus tonight. Hallelujah. Isn't it, isn't it just refreshing to come together and to worship and praise the Lord together? Because you know what? It doesn't matter what circumstance. Every one of us has a story or ten that we could tell from this week alone. But when we come together, we get our eyes off of those circumstances and we put our eyes back on the one who is in control. And the power of praise is that it shifts our focus from the things that bother us and irritate us and put the, our focus back on the one who really has all the answers. The psalmist said, I will lift mine eyes unto the hills. That was one of those songs of ascent that they would sing as they, they made their way back to Jerusalem. And, and on their way up, they would sing. I will lift mine eyes unto the hills. But there's a little there's a little tweak there because the King James loses the sense. I love the King James, but it kind of misses it in this case because the next phrase is actually a question. From whence cometh my help? And the psalmist answers, My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and of earth. Hallelujah. Those neighboring nations around them, it was not uncommon to go seek high places to worship. They would go to the high places and they would build altars and they would build groves and they would offer sacrifices. And so the people of God, when they would come back to Jerusalem, they said, oh, we're lifting our eyes to the hills, but where does our help come from? It's further away from the hills. We look past the hills. My help comes from the Lord. My confidence is not in some high ground that we may control. My confidence comes from heaven, the God who made heaven and earth. Oh, it is so good to be the presence of the Lord. I apologize for keeping you standing. Let me, I want to, I want for us to read again, Matthew chapter 5. And just to set the context, we're going to continue what we tried to start last week regarding what is commonly called the Beatitudes. And so I want us to start reading Matthew chapter 5 and I'm going to read the first 12 verses again to set the context. Amen? And seeing the multitudes, he went up into a mountain. And when he was set, his disciples came unto him, and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are they which do hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. Blessed are they which are persecuted, 
for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are ye when men shall revile you and persecute you and shall say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceeding glad. For great is your reward in heaven, for so persecuted they the prophets which were before you. Blessed. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are they that mourn. Let's go to the Lord in prayer tonight. Ask him to meet with us in this remaining few minutes we have together tonight through his word. Lord, we're so grateful tonight for your victory that we feel in this place and the confirmation of your spirit. And I'm so thankful, Lord, for the work that you have begun in each of our lives. And we're asking right now, Lord, that you continue that work through the working of your word. Your word promised us, Lord, that it was your intent to sanctify and cleanse your bride through the washing of water by the word. So we ask tonight, Lord, that you would do that work in our hearts and in our lives tonight. Cleanse us and purify us by the word. Let it be grafted into us, into our spirit tonight, we ask. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen, amen. You may be seated. So last week we began looking at this list and this commonly called the Beatitudes It is, of course, the opening to what is called the Sermon on the Mount. It's interesting that neither the word Beatitude nor Sermon on the Mount actually appear really in the Scripture, but it is drawn from uh, this setting, and both of these words, both of these terms drawn from this setting. And we made the point last week that really this is the Lord laying out the constitution of his kingdom. This is the manifesto, if you will, of the kingdom that the Lord came to this earth to establish. And so he is establishing for us his expectation of what we will see in our own lives. And other writers in the New Testament will expand on the idea or talk about it in different, in different ways. But Jesus is, of course, the one who established the foundation, and he does so beginning in these verses that we have read tonight. It's interesting that the word beatitude, we have come to use that word to refer to these um, verses that we read tonight, the beatitudes. And I don't know about you, but that's not a word that I commonly use in my everyday language. And in fact, you know, I remember uh, growing up in the church thinking, not really knowing what the word meant, but just understanding that these were the attitudes that were supposed to be. These were the be attitude. This was the way I'm supposed to think and live. And that's, that's really, okay, it's all right, but that's not really what the word means. But, um, but it works, right? It establishes priority and precedent in our lives. The word beatitude actually means, as we were discussing last week about the word blessed or blessed that the King James uses, It refers to this state of bliss or happiness or fulfillment, but not even in the way that we would mean if we were referring to happiness in the world. When we talk about happiness, very often, our happiness is tied to circumstances. Happy birthday, Merry Christmas, Happy New Year. Our happiness we find is just tied to circumstances. If things are going well, we've got a little cushion in the bank account. Um, The old body doesn't hurt too bad today. Got a little extra energy. We're happy. Things start to go a little sideways. Our happiness starts to leak away. Things start to go in the wrong direction. I have, I'm not even sure what this means. I have some friends in the UK say things go pear-shaped. I think we say turn upside down. They say things go pear-shaped, right? When things are not going the way they, we intend for them to go, our happiness starts to leak away. That's not really the state of happiness that is being communicated to us here. What is more closely referenced probably is what we would say is joy. In the sense that you can have joy that is not tied to your circumstances, But there is an undergirding of joy in your life that is brought about, of course, 
partially because of the peace of what God has wrought in your life. And the Lord is working. And, and the, the longer we live for God, the longer we walk with the Lord, the more clearly we understand that circumstances in life, is, uh, they're just temporary things. And the circumstances of our life, they come and go. Um, riches or wealth or um, sometimes it seems like sufficiency, right? It just comes and goes. Um, and uh, it seems like one day everything is great and the next day it's all taken wings and flown away. And uh, maybe I'm a little bitter because we're headed into real estate tax season, property tax season. And, you know, it just is a little irritating about the whole thing. But, but this, is the, this is the price we pay for living in God's world, uh, the world that we live in. It's unredeemed. And, and that's just the nature of things. It comes and goes. But what the Lord and what we were just singing about and what the Lord has wrought and worked in our lives is, of course, permanent. And the, the longer we serve the Lord, we start to understand that God has a way of bringing us through things when we didn't see the way through. And there is a we, we learn, in, and there's a measure of panic, I suppose, that always sets in when we see circumstances turning. How am I going to do this? But yet, as we grow and as we mature, we understand some way, somehow, God is going to be there. And there is a joy that we can tap into that is not really conditional on circumstances. Psalm 1 is one of my favorite passages of Scripture. And... The psalmist says, you know, blessed is the man that doesn't get tied up with all the stuff that goes on in the world. Blessed is the man that uh, walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, stands in the way of sinners, sits in the seat of the scornful. But his delight is in the law of the Lord. And, and in the Lord's law, in his law, doth he meditate day and night. You know, the temptation, I'm going to run out of time here, but the temptation for us sometimes when we lose sleep, we meditate at night when we're, lo- when we're losing sleep. It's generally because we're meditating on a circumstance that we don't fully have the answer for. And we think that if we get real still and we just lay there all night, <clears throat> that somehow the answer is going to come to us. But the psalmist said, blessed is the man whose delight is in the law of the Lord, and he focuses his attention upon the law. In his law doth he meditate day and night. Now, now, how does he describe that man? He said, he is like a tree that's planted by the rivers of water. He, he's like a man who has put down roots. And his well-being, that man's well-being, the one who delights in the law of the Lord, who meditates in it day and night, his well-being is not tied to what's going on up here on the surface. Because he's planted by a river and he has put down roots in such a way that he has access to that river regardless of what's happening up on the surface. And there is a permanence to that man because he is tapped into something that is, you might say, beneath the surface. And, and what you will discover, you've probably already discovered this, is that when you live for the Lord... People that you know, people that you work with, people that come in contact with you, they say, I know you're going through a difficult time. How in the world have you managed to keep your wits about you in this difficult season? It's because you've been planted by a river of water and you put down roots and you tapped into something that is independent of how the winds blow and whether the storm is on the surface or whether there's Bright sunshine and no rain, those roots are down into to and tapped in to that river of water. And the psalmist goes a step further and he compares that righteous man to the unrighteous man. And he says, he's like the chaff that the wind drives away. This just serves to emphasize, by contrast, the distinction between the permanence of the righteous and the temporal nature of the unrighteous. He said they're like the chaff that the wind drives away. You've probably all heard this, but you, the way they would winnow grain in those days, they would harvest the grain and they would bring it in and then they would thresh it. And as they thresh it, it would separate the grain, the meat of the grain from the husk 
that was on the outside. But as they were threshing it and rubbing it and making all of that separate, it was all there together. And so what they would do is that early in the day or late in the afternoon, as the sun would start to set, there would typically be a nice breeze. And so they would take that grain that they had threshed and there was chaff and there was grain mixed in together and they would toss it up in the air and the heavier grain would fall back but the little breeze would grab that husk and it would just carry it away and the psalmist said the righteous man he's planted by the rivers of water he's put down roots but the unrighteous the least little breeze will carry them far far away and there is such a contrast to the outcome of the righteous and the unrighteous. The righteous is planted and withstands every season. The unrighteous has no hope of permanence. He's carried away like the wind carries the chaff away. So when Jesus comes here and he's talking about blessedness and he's talking about fulfillment and he's talking about joy, he is talking about that permanent kind of joy that comes from a relationship founded upon the nature and holiness of God and the permanence of God. He's talking about what is available to the righteous man, what is available to that one who has really put those roots down. And there is a blessedness and a fulfillment that comes to that man. Why? Because he has submitted himself to the will of God. So the Lord is the one who created us and he knows us better than we would know ourselves. And that can be kind of a cliche, but if you stop and think about it, it's really so true. How many times have we thought we absolutely needed, we absolutely had to have something, but we discovered (laughs) that we didn't know. That it was God's way that was the best way. And that our way led to pain and to misery, and if persisted, even unto destruction. Our, our way leads us down a path. There is a way that seems right to a man, but the end thereof is death. But the ways of God lead us to life eternal. And so this is what Jesus is saying here. There is, if you will trust the creator, he will show you what true happiness is. The writer of the book of Proverbs, he said that the bread of deceit is sweet to a man. But afterward, his mouth is filled with gravel. (laughs) What a picture. What a picture. It's bread. It's (laughs) the cinnamon rolls of deceit. They're sweet to a man. But afterward... It's like you got your mouth full of pavement. It's deceitful. And what Jesus is saying here in Matthew is those things that we see and those things that we come across, those things that we think we have to have, they actually spoil our appetite for the true bread of life. They spoil our desires to have what we really need. So to completely counter to our thinking, Jesus says, happy is the man who is poor in spirit. Now there's a head scratcher. Verse four, happy is the man, happy are they that mourn. Literally, happy are the sad. (laughs) The Lord was really good at speaking in apparent paradoxes. The first shall be last. The last shall be first. He that seeks his life will lose it. He that saves his life will lose it. But he that loses his life will find it. And what the Lord is saying here in these verses, as we said last week, is that we are not qualified to assess our needs. We well know what our wants are. But our need is a different matter altogether. Now, anybody that has had kids, you you know exactly where this is headed because they learn very quick. They don't say, I want something. They say, I need it. (laughs) 
I need a snack. <laughs> I need the G.I. Joe. I need whatever. I need it. But you as the parent, you know it's not even worth arguing about, but you're not qualified to assess your needs. I, I appreciate you expressing your wants, but you're not qualified to talk about your needs. And this is what the Lord is saying to us. <laughs> as mature as we like to think of ourselves, we're not qualified to articulate what it is that we need because the Lord says to us, if you want to be happy and you want to be feel, fulfilled and you want to be, you want everything that life has for you, the first thing you've got to do is be poor in spirit. Yeah. That just doesn't make sense. It just doesn't compute. But the point is that it's not our ability to assess our own need. And in fact, our own needs are so profound that what we discover is that we are unable. We don't have anything to bring or anything within our reach that can satisfy those needs. And until we realize that, we will never be fulfilled. We will never have joy. We will never be blessed. We talked last week about this word blessed or blessed, literally the opposite of it is woe or cursed. And in fact, if we don't do these things, the direct implication of these scriptures is that our life will be cursed. The path to blessing includes our emptiness. It is that taking up of our cross and following him. Now we spent some time last week talking about these specific Items, but I, I beg your indulgence tonight to let me go back through them. Just, I'll try to be quick. I make no promises. What I have discovered, much to your chagrin, is that we could literally take, very easily take one Wednesday night for each one of these Beatitudes and explore and look at the implications of those things. So let me, let me just kind of try to, Maybe hit the highlights a little bit. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. We talked a little bit about this last week. That word for poor there, there's two different, at least two different words for poor in the New Testament, two different Greek words. Um, one word means to have meager means. This is the word that the Lord uses in the story of the widow's might, and he describes her poverty, that she was poor, but she gave out of her lack and that her, her sacrifice, her offering was greater than those who gave of their excess. But in her case, she was poor and she gave out of her lack. The word there that he uses for poor really means someone who has meager means and maybe even insufficient, but they have something to bring. But the word that's used here is a different word that really means profoundly, we would just say broke. Nothing to offer. Nothing to offer. And it has the sense, as we mentioned last week, of a, of a cowering or a cringing beggar. One who is so destitute that they, won't, they don't even want to look at the one who might be offering something into their cup. And that spiritually there is a poverty in us that has to take place in us if we are to be blessed. The Lord is saying, if, if you're going to be blessed, if you're going to be fulfilled, if you're going to have joy, you have to be completely empty. Now, the reality is we are. We have nothing to bring to God. But we have to recognize the degree of poverty that we are in. The Lord... Resist the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Our pride, and it's no accident that this is the very first one, because the Lord, I think there's a logical order here in these eight or nine um, little sayings that the Lord has given us. There's a logical order, and it makes sense that the first one is we must come in a poor spirit. Now, there's a similar passage in Luke that says, blessed are the poor. And some have tried to say, well, that the Lord is really talking about material poverty. Blessed are the impoverished. But 
You know, if that, there's a couple of reasons why that doesn't make sense. First of all, if you have two similar passages, the one that's more detailed and brings the most clarity shines light on the one who, you let the Bible interpret the Bible, and the one passage that is clearer and, and uh, has more detail, you let it instruct the other one that has less detail. And these are two men recording the words of the Lord. Luke obviously thought it was sufficient to just say, blessed are the poor, knowing that people would understand there are different kinds of poverty, but we're talking about poverty of spirit. But if we were just talking about material poverty, then the worst thing we could ever do is help the poor, right? The worst thing we could ever do for them would be to give them money. And that just doesn't make sense. I mean, we would really be doing a service if we went out and took everybody's money from them. I mean, we would be lost, but we'd be saving the world, right? They would all be... So it's clear the Lord is saying here, he's talking about the way that we approach him and our spirit and our attitude in the way that we approach him. And this is the first thing. And it can't just be a, it can't just be an act. I mean, we have to have a recognition of the fact that we really bring nothing to him. It's, Jesus says, Take up your cross. In the Old Testament, if you use the analogy of the tabernacle in the Old Testament, it's come in the door, climb up on the altar. The, the old you is worthless and useless. And this is why Paul would say in Romans 7, I know that in me, that is in my flesh, dwells no good thing. I, I, have, I have nothing to bring, nothing to offer. Everything, my relationship with God is based solely on the fact that he has loved me. And incidentally, if you take these verses and you compare them with 1 Corinthians 13, you're going to see a lot of parallel uh, ideas that go with what is the definition of love and how does love act and what is what the Lord is saying here. But notice what happens. We don't just get stuck in this poverty because he says blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven the the true riches the ones who recognize how impoverished they are gain access to the true riches the the eternal riches and and this is the reason why they're happy not because they feel good about the fact that they are empty and they have nothing to offer to the creator of the universe and that like Isaiah we're standing here at the feet of uh, we had a vision, if we were, to have a vision of, of God's throne in heaven. And we would see how great and how majestic and how holy and how pure it is. And we would see ourselves. That wouldn't make us happy. That would not fulfill us. But what does fulfill us is that when that posture comes into our lives, we're not being satisfied with the cotton candy of the fleshly carnal desires that brings about a momentary satisfaction but only dulls us from pursuing what is true the lord says if you're empty and you're completely impoverished then you have access to the true riches the kingdom of heaven what a what a paradox and then he says blessed are they that that mourn when you realize your poverty, when you realize you have nothing, when you realize how offensive and how repulsive your sin is to God, it grieves your heart. And there is a mourning that takes place. And that mourning is, is key to progressing through this. You read Psalm 51, David's psalm after Nathan comes in, Points the old bony finger, says, you're the man that did all this bad stuff. And David says, have mercy on me, O God, according to your loving kindness. He saw the wickedness of his own heart. It brought him in poverty of spirit before the presence of the Lord. And it created in him a mourning and a weeping. Take not your holy presence away from me. There was a... There was a crushed feeling that overpowered him. Now, it's important to say that Jesus did not say, blessed are they that despair. He says, blessed are they that mourn. You have to understand this is, 
what Psalm 23, yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. He didn't say I built a house there, I set up camp, I, I you know, decided I'm going to live in this valley, but I'm, I'm going through it. And we have to understand this is part of our, our journey, if you will. This is part of our walk with God. We start at this place of complete emptiness, and it grieves us, and it brings about a sense of mourning. But the promise is that when you, when you don't try to pacify that, when you don't look for short-term solutions, when you're not allowing your fleshly desires to lead you in different directions that would just mollify temporarily these, this discomfort, but you embrace the mourning, the point is, Jesus said, they shall be comforted. I'll probably refer to this verse a little bit later as we go through this, but as, as I'm reading this, 1 John 3 is rolling over in my mind. Behold, what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us, that we should be called the children of God. And he says, Beloved, now are you the sons of God, but it doth not yet appear what we shall be. Seems to me what John is saying is, we are in this relationship because of the love of God. And there is a certain status because of what God has done in our lives, but it's not complete yet. It does not yet appear what we shall be. For we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we will see him as he is. We're already sons, we're already daughters, but we're on this journey and this progress. Now, what the Lord is saying here is, blessed are those who are poor in spirit, who mourn. That poverty of spirit leads us to a grief, and that grieving causes us to have a meekness. There is a a progress. You know, there's nothing that will humble you and change your attitude like recognizing I'm not all that. Blessed are the meek. Well, I'm going to tell you, if you, have, if you understand the complete poverty with which you approach the King of kings and the Lord of lords, and you have mourned over your sin, whatever relationship you have with him, it does not go to your head. There is a meekness and there is a gentleness that comes into your life. Paul said, Galatians 6, brethren... If one be overtaken in a fault, ye which are spiritual, restore such a one in the spirit of meekness. Considering yourself, (laughs) lest you also be tempted. When we're dealing with each other, there needs to be a gentleness in our own spirit that is informed by the fact that we realize that we're only where we are by the grace of God. Every one of us has offended the creator of the universe to the point where he literally could send a lightning bolt to take us out. Every one of us. And our, our sin, our attitude, it was repulsive to him. And that should bring about a mourning in us, but it should also bring about a gentleness and a kindness with which we interact with each other. Now, in the ancient world... Meekness was weakness, man. If, you're, if you were meek, you weren't, especially for men, you weren't a man. You know, in the, in the Roman culture, the, the father, the head of the household, had the right to say whether, whether uh, the children lived or died, whether the slaves lived or died, even whether the wife lived or died. I mean, and, and the, the fact that you, it was not viewed as a strength if you bore an insult and didn't respond. And Jesus comes with this different way of saying, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. The idea of the Romans was, by force and by violence, we will overspread the earth. And Jesus says, Blessed are the meek. Blessed are the ones, not saying that you're weak, but your 
power, your capability is all submitted to the will of God. And meekness is strength that is under control. And it is fully submitted to the will of God to do the will of God. And the Lord said, if your enemy compels you to walk a mile, go too. If your enemy slaps you on the cheek, you don't smack them. You turn the other cheek. And, and you don't smack them after they hit the second cheek either. Right? Sometimes the temptation is, okay, Lord, I turn the other cheek. Now am I free to do as I wish? Probably part of that flesh that's not submitted yet. There's not meekness there. You know, the, Moses told the children of Israel in the book of Deuteronomy, he said, when you, when you harvest the grain out of your field, don't take it all. Leave some in the corners. Leave some laying around. If it falls out, don't pick it up. Just gather. And he said, leave some for the wayfarer that comes by. And remember, you were a bondman in Egypt. You know what it's like to not have a home. You know what it's like to not have a nation. You know what it's like to not have an identity. Remember what it was like being in Egypt and leave a little bit extra. And what drives our meekness in our interactions, not only with the Lord, but with each other, is a constant awareness that, Lord, I, am, I have nothing to offer. And my sin grieves me, and it, it causes me to work meekness with my fellow man. So blessed are they then which do hunger and thirst after righteousness. Oh, there's a a desire then to fulfill and to respond and that my poverty and my my grieving over my sin I don't want it it doesn't become despair but it should change my behavior and it actually should drive me into the presence of the Lord Paul would write to the Ephesians he'd say for by grace are you saved by faith and that not of yourselves it is the gift of God even your faith is the gift of God the fact that when you come into the presence of the Lord, have you ever thought about this? You come into the presence of the Lord, and as a sinner, you feel the weight of that conviction, but you don't feel rejection. You know, you know that you're not right with God. You know that the creator of the universe, and you have offended him, and yet there is not, a, in the true presence of the Lord, there's not a sense of rejection, but there's a drawing. It's the gift of God that draws us. And so our response to our spiritual poverty and our grief is actually, it creates in us a hunger and a thirst for righteousness. The problem is when we feel that hunger and thirst with other things, it dulls that appetite. The psalmist would say, as a, as a deer pants after the water brook, so my soul longeth after thee, O God. For us to really get the blessedness and the joy and the fulfillment that he wants us to have, our hunger and our thirst must be after the pure things of God. And the psalmist, the picture that he paints there, I think it's Psalm 42, is actually a deer that is running from the hunter. He's, he's on the run. He is in danger. And he has run and he has run. And he has, he's so uh, expended all of his energy that there is this overwhelming thirst that he has. And, he's, and David says, that's how I feel about the presence of God. I've got all of this stuff from my past that's hounding me and it's chasing me. But it's driving me to your presence. And like that deer would thirst for real natural water. Lord, I know the true water comes from you. And that is my thirst. Those first four deal with our own internal condition and our assessment of our condition. The next four deal with our outward 
primarily with our outward ways in which we act toward each other. And there, is, there are parallels between them. It's kind of like the, the Ten Commandments. You can divide the Ten Commandments up into how man is supposed to react to God and how man is supposed to react to his neighbor. And this is why the Lord would say, the two that was asked, what's the greatest commandment? He said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and spirit. Love your neighbor as yourself. On those two, on those two points, you can derive everything else. And I was in school. I didn't like chemistry because there's too much memorization, too many, um, too many exceptions to the rules. I liked math because you could take a, a couple of little simple rules and then you could just derive everything else. And the Lord says, look, you just take these two principles. Love God, love your neighbor as yourself. Everything else falls out from that. And what, what he's saying here is when your inner condition gets right, it's going to manifest itself as you progress and mature. It's going to manifest in the ways that you treat each other. So blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Mercy is, mercy is that thing that is, it's the, the really, I guess, uh, the foundational part of what we experience from God, his mercy towards us. So as we're progressing through this poverty of spirit, this mourning, um, meekness, this hunger and thirst after righteousness, well, the next thing is that should manifest itself outwardly in mercy, just like Paul says in Galatians 6, restore such a one in the spirit of meekness. Hey, you, you shouldn't be looking to shoot the wounded. We've got to be looking for ways to restore our neighbors, restore our friends, find ways to reconnect. Because if you show mercy, you're going to obtain mercy. And that leads us to blessed are the pure in heart for they shall see God. You see how the relationship gets restored? We started with poverty. We've now worked our way. What would we say? Holiness? The pure in heart? Talk about spend three or four weeks on that one. You tug on that thread. As Brother Tenney said, it'll pucker over in Genesis. It'll pucker over in Revelation. You just, it just wherever you tug, it just starts bunching up because it's all throughout the scripture. This is the nature of God, this purity of heart, this holiness. This is the actual nature of God. Well, how are you going to see God? What did John say? We know that we will be like him. We will see him as he is. The only way we can see him is to be like him. Moses said, Lord, show me your glory. He says, uh, sorry, can't do that. I'll, I'll, I'll hide you away. I'll put my hand over you. I'll pass by. And at the last minute, I'll just move my hand out of the way. You get a little glimpse. But no man can see me and live. The psalmist said, who shall ascend into the hill of the Lord? He that hath clean hands and a pure heart. The whole reason why Adam and Eve were removed from the garden was because they had disobeyed. And that disobedience is the thing that God has been working every since to rectify, and it's got to be dealt with in order to restore the relationship. And what Jesus is saying is if you start with poverty of spirit and you work your way through here and you get back to pure in heart, you're going to see God. And then the next step, if you're pure in heart, these are all kind of tied together. Blessed are the peacemakers. What did Proverbs say? The Lord hates, one of the things the Lord hates, people that stir up strife. People, what we would say today, people that are addicted to the drama. <laughs> Say, save the drama for your mama. Don't bring it here. Pastor, clean this up next week. Seriously, if, there is, if we detect in ourselves a desire for their tension and strife and confusion, hey, friend, you, don't, you, don't, you can shoot the messenger if you want to, but it's in the book. That's not of God. He's not the author of confusion. Strife causes all kinds of things. And, and then 
if you, if you really think about this verse, blessed are the peacemakers, well, what are we really talking about here? We're talking about those that facilitate the restoration of relationship. There is a spiritual aspect to this peace. It's not about just keeping people from going to blows. It's not about just defusing, although there's a, there is a ministry in that, resolving conflict. But the real conflict is between us and God. And since we have gotten to the point where we have purity of heart to the point that we can see God, now our responsibility becomes to be the administrators of that, to be those that would go and work to make peace. And the Lord said, if you are the peacemakers, you're called the children of God. Now, restored to right relationship, blessed are the pure in heart, they shall see God. We're already the sons of God. But to... To be called the children of God, there's an additional aspect on that in the sense that you are known by, you're known by your character, you're known by what fruit you bear. You know, so people that know my parents, they see me, they say, I know who your daddy is, I know who your mama is. When people see our behavior and they interact with us, do they say, I know who your mama is, I know who your daddy is, and, and hopefully they mean you're a Christian. And not you're a child of the devil. The Lord said, if you're a peacemaker, there is a fulfillment that comes from that because you will be known as the children of God. Resolve conflict, help to keep the peace, but also helping to restore individuals' relationships with the Lord. Now, You've progressed all the way through all of these beatitudes to the point, (laughs) blessed are they which are persecuted for righteousness' sake. The truth is, if you become a peacemaker, there are going to be people who are addicted to the drama that won't like it. And you're going to be accused, you're going to be persecuted for righteousness' sake. Now look, folks, there is no there is no value, there is no holiness in being persecuted because you're a jerk. I mean, if if you can read it in Peter, you can read it, you know, it's like Peter says there's no value if you're if you've done wrong, you can't say that your suffering is For the cause of Christ. But if you've done your best to live openly and as a person of integrity and to deal with situations and take care of things in life and and get along with people and be a minister of truth and of righteousness and of restoration of relationship. And then if you're persecuted for righteousness sake, well, there is a blessedness in that. And in fact, those are the ones. Notice we've gone full circle. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That's the same promise to the poor in spirit. We've come full circle on this. And verse 13, verse 12 rather, Rejoice and be exceeding glad, for great is your reward in heaven. For so persecuted your fathers, the prophets that went before you. The Lord said, Is the servant greater than the master? They crucified the Lord, folks. And they didn't crucify him because he was, you know, robbing wagon trains or anything like that. They crucified him because of what he said. They crucified him because he preached love, because he was, you know all the reasons. There's no reason why we should expect. We may be mercifully spared, but there's no reason why we should expect that we're going to face anything less than what our Lord did if they didn't. If they didn't spare the master, they're not going to necessarily spare the servant. So what we have to do is in our... Why don't you stand with me? I'm coming to a close, I promise. As we, as we live our lives and we work toward making peace, we have to understand there may be persecution that comes for righteousness sake. But the blessedness comes whenever we take it. What did the Lord say? Put this on their bill? No, he said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. They don't understand what's going on. 
And when we see people through the eyes of Christ and we recognize that every person that we come in contact with, the most annoying and the most irritating and the most overbearing and the, the meanest boss, and all, they all are potential to live in a glorified state in the world to come. If they will submit their lives to the Lord, there is an eternal potential there for them. And our blessedness comes whenever if they revile us, if they say false things against us for his name's sake, we check ourselves, we make sure we're okay. But the blessedness comes when we, like the Lord would do, forgive them because they don't know what they're doing. This makes it very clear. Paul said the law was our schoolmaster to bring us to Christ. These 12 verses make it very clear. We can't live for God without the Holy Ghost. This brings us to an awareness that I don't have it in myself. It's not in me. There is nothing, there is no good thing that in me that is in my flesh. I can't do it. The only way that we can aspire to this life is when we have received the Holy Spirit and we allow that Holy Spirit, we create in our own lives space for that Holy Spirit to operate and to lead us and to transform us. Be not conformed to this world. This world has its values. This world has what it thinks is valuable and important. But don't let this world press you into its mold. Don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Our only hope is in the Holy Ghost. Amen. Why don't we offer thanks to the Lord? Lord, we're grateful tonight. Thank you for your word. Lord, I pray that you would work in our hearts and remind us again how desperately we need your Holy Ghost. How desperately we need your spirit to work in us. That we are so unable on our own, Lord, to do what needs to be done. But you have provided for us a way. And you have given us power through the spirit of the Lord and you will transform us and you will change us. And so we ask tonight, Lord, that you would do that work in our hearts and in our lives. We ask it in Jesus name. Why don't we give the Lord a hand clap of praise tonight?